Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we discuss RPG ideas, compare rules, establish sacred cows, fight about what's best, then we slaughter the cows and generally geek out over our favorite games, mostly D&D. I'm Sam Dillon. And I'm Brandis Stoddard. In this episode, we are discussing to hit rolls and armor class. So here's my question for you, Brandis. Do we want to uh, just uh, talk about what these concepts are and then talk about different editions? Or do you just want to plow in and start with old original D&D and talk about what they did? Okay, so in the interest of, I don't know, like our non-D&D playing relatives who are listening to this to do us a solid. <laughs> so if my mom listens? <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, let's go ahead and say that uh, these are two of the fundamental pieces of how combat works when you're sitting around a table. The two-hit roll is the thing that decides whether the warrior's sword connects with a target, and the armor class is the number that the defender uses to oppose the two-hit roll. The armor class is not usually a die roll. I'm sure you can find some games where it is, but D&D isn't one of them. And the to-hit roll for the entirety of D&D has always been a trusty D20. Yes. However, throughout the editions, what can modify that to-hit roll has changed a great deal. Oh, Lord, has it. <laughs> so if we talk about original 1974 release Dungeons and Dragons, the first sort of thing that jumped out of the head of Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson and the j enjoyable times they had with their, their wargaming groups back then, a lot of that game came from Chainmail, which is a miniatures game, but in the original little booklets that they wrote, it has uh, what we call Descending Armor Class. Right, Descending Armor Class and Attack Matrices, I believe. Right, right. So the, the two-hit value that you have, like what, what you have to roll on a d20 to hit your target, is based on your level and your class. So what kind of character you are and what how experienced you are. And then you look up on a table what it is. And it wasn't until the Greyhawk supplement came out that the strength attribute modifier actually adjusted the two-hit roll in a melee attack. However, before that, Dexterity did modify ranged attacks, so what they refer to as missile fire. But there was only one modification. So if you had a, a dexterity above 12, you got a plus one. If you had a one below nine, you got a minus one. Uh, and other than that, that was the only thing that would modify that. Armor class in that edition was based on what you were wearing and whether or not you were using a shield. And if you had no armor on your uh, and you weren't using a shield, your armor class was 10. But if you had plate mail, the best armor possible, non-magical at that point, and a shield, your armor class was two. So the lower the armor class, the better, which is why we call it decent. Sending. Well, let me ask you something then. At what point do we see pluses to magic weapons and pluses to magic armor starting to skew those numbers? Is that part of OD&D? They do have magic items that will modify the two-hit roll and the damage, actually. Yeah, there you go. But, you know, you could get like up to a plus three sword, 
but in general, a plus one sword is going to be the thing. And, and you can get, you know, plus one spear or plus one axe or whatnot. And so in that case, you're going to have that modify the two-hit roll. Yeah, it's certainly the case that generations upon generations of first-time gamers heard your armor class goes down and right. didn't understand why that could possibly be a good thing because I have run into people on the internet who tell me that descending AC is intuitive for them and with all love and kindness I hope they get treatment for their Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think, you know, for something to be intuitive, if you use it year after year after year, it might become intuitive. Yeah. In, in a way that is, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say abusive. <laughs> I, I don't know what to tell you, man. Uh, I mean, it, it, Sam, it, some it, people it, juggle it might be. <laughs> some people juggle geese. That is true. That is true. So uh, the other thing I wanted to point out, and the last thing about uh, 1974 OD&D was the range that you were at, if you were firing a missile weapon or throwing a missile weapon, the range that you were at could also modify your missile attack roll. Right on. But it was just a plus one or a minus one. So if you were at short range, you got a plus one. And if you were at long range, you got a minus one. If you were at medium range, uh, you had no bonus or no modification there. Uh, And that was pretty much it. It's interesting. It's really interesting to see what nowadays we would just about look at as the the proto-form of bounded accuracy, because... Mm That still fits very, very tightly within the the span of a D20 until you start getting into the the fighter's advancement chart. Mm-hmm. Right. There's just so few modifiers that the, the accuracy takes a good while to get to, well, I can't miss or I can't hit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really funny that the, the game was, well, to my modern sensibilities now, having played for many editions, this game feels so simple, right? Just reading it through. Yeah, for sure. But but the the fact of the matter is, though, that when you, when you were back in the day and you were playing, it wasn't really that simple. It was just these were the mechanics we had, so this is what we played, and this is, you know, th- this is the mindset that we used. And we weren't thinking of it as, oh, well, in these modern editions, there are a bazillion different conditions that can affect your two-hit roll. And there's a bunch of lighting changes, and there's cover, and there's you know all of these things that could affect whether or not you hit. It wasn't that we felt like we were missing out on something back then. You just played the, the system that you had. Yeah. And especially if you start listening to uh, descriptions of how Gygax was running his game and so on, it really sounds like he was comfortable introducing new situational modifiers that weren't necessarily codified for anyone really on the fly. And when you get right down to it, that's, that's a way to play. It works. Yeah, there was also something else in Greyhawk. Speaking of his proclivities, because he, you know, he wrote Greyhawk, and the the initial, I mean, of course, he that was his campaign world, right? right? There's also this this interesting couple of pages with an alternative hit modification table that is based on the weapon type that you're using. Oh yeah, oh man, yeah. oh man, and and so you know, presumably that was meant for well, if you're in Gary's campaign. And so you're playing in Greyhawk, these things might apply to you. But if you were playing in a home game, your GM or your DM might not do that, so that they might not apply. Right. And it's one of the the first big steps toward complexity that the game starts taking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, that supplement is also introducing 
piles and piles of new stuff as clearly Gary's players were burning through content that he was putting in front of them. I believe they were playing multiple right. times a week. And mm-hmm. so like a GM now, he's just filling in stuff in every area of content as fast as he can type it, and then he polishes up those notes and publishes them. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's a DMs Guild plan right there. Right, (laughs) right, right. One other note about the books here, too. I also noticed that because one of the things I was going to do as I was prepping for this podcast was I was going to write down the definition of armor class that is listed in each edition. Oh, there you go. There is no definition of armor class in OD&D. That's the greatest. They they assumed you knew what it was yep. because they assumed that the players were either being taught how to play by their DM who did know what it was, or the players were coming from the wargaming background and they understood things like chainmail. Oh, that is beautiful. And so there's really no, there's nothing. It just doesn't say anything. It just uses the term as though we all, we're all just experts. <laughs> as you know, Bob. Yes, yes, of course. So let's move on and, and briefly just uh, talk about a couple of things in the, the next iteration of the game, which was the Holmes Basic Box in 1977. And really, you still used a two-hit matrix. It was still based on what armor you were wearing. It was not based on dexterity. There was no dexterity modification to armor class. Also, descending armor class, same thing. You know, your your lower AC is better. But it does actually give a dis- an actual glossary entry for what armor class is. And what it says is that armor class has to do with the defender's abilities, that they represent the defender's abilities. What interesting choice of phrasing. Yeah, it, it is very... Because they're referencing an opponent trying to attack someone or, or some creature, and the armor class represents the defender's abilities. I, I thought that was quite quite interesting because it's not really presented like that in any other edition. So that was kind of interesting. It's just describing an object they're wearing as an ability. And that is both plausible and moon language. So whatever. Well, and it's right. And so you you wonder where, you know, because one of the reasons I wanted to write down the definitions was at what point does it go from being a strictly statistical, did you hit or miss to being a, well, you might have hit, but the blow wasn't strong enough to cause damage. So that's actually what armor class represents is, right? Uh, there is there is a split there at some point, but it's not here. Well, <laughs> so to, to drill, drill down on that, we need to look at the definition of hit points the first time that shows up. And I I wrote this down for a Tribality article at one point. I did not try to dig up Chainmail or Original or even 1977. I went straight to the Menser. Okay. But Menser's text says, Your character's hit point score represents his ability to survive injury, and an experienced character lasts longer in a fight or other dangerous situations. There is a sense when you when you read through uh, the original edition and the first uh, couple of sets of basic, there's a sense that there is a direct relationship between armor class, attack rolls, and hit dice in a way I think that is slightly different from more modern editions because I feel like back then because it was uh, coming directly from the war game kind of mentality, it was a very statistical, here's a number that you're going to use to represent something. And it's okay if it's abstract. We don't have to describe it in ways that make it make sense to our modern sensibilities. Right. And so in that way, they just kind of had these tenuous connections without having to explain it, which is really interesting. Right. I mean, hit dice, as far as I know, 
are, for, especially for monsters, are simultaneously standing in for challenge rating and hit point generation and attack score. Right, exactly. They play that uh, triple role. That's exactly right. So the, the only other thing that was interesting about the Holmes basic, I mean, well, the only other thing about the two hit role and the AC relationship in Holmes, there's a lot of interesting things in Holmes basic. Yep. I don't want to get nasty letters. Um, <laughs> but uh, the interesting thing is Holmes Basic was really written as a compilation of the 1974 rule set with an eye toward pushing people to first edition advanced D&D because it's really, it really only has three levels and, and it literally refers the reader to the AD&D player's handbook if they want to go above third level. Oh. So it's it's the sort of direct uh, connective tissue between original edition and first edition, the rule set that was actually the canonical rule set there. Right now, in between, it, so so after the, after Holmes Basic in 1977, of course, the first edition player's handbook came out in 1978. Yep, and I have the first edition DMG open in my lap right now. Excellent. So of course, the first edition player's handbook doesn't have attack matrices or any explanation of, at all of what you would need to do to hit the opponent other than roll a good number instead of a bad number. Right. That's right. That's right. Although it does it is it is the first time that strength modifies directly modifies the two hit yep. roll in melee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I'm looking at um, page 74 of the fabled first edition DMG. This is my wife's copy that she inherited from her dad. And certainly to my sensibilities, which were founded in second edition, these tables make my eyes bleed. I I, I, I make no bones about it. They just make my eyes bleed. Um, Because you have to take into account that you're taking the numbers here and then applying modifiers to those based on strength and magic items and whatever other modifiers might come along because proficiency right first edition had proficiency and, and we're starting to really get into the era where you'd expect to see modifiers for cover and darkness and so on i don't have all those numbers exactly at my fingertips because it's a it's a big dense book and lord knows no one's yet laid out a, a tabletop rule book in a way that everyone found useful so right right uh, this is no <laughs> exception i noticed a couple things that i thought were interesting in here one of them is, it was the str- that strength modifies the two hit rolls directly now but you also have to be proficient. So if you if you're not proficient in the type of weapon you're using, you take a big penalty. Dexterity modifies your AC and it modifies your two hit roll for a ranged attack, but the effect or the the modification, the modifier itself, even with the same ability score, the modifier is different. So if you have a say a, an 18 dexterity or a 17 dexterity, I think you get like a plus four bonus to your AC. So that would actually be a minus four to your AC. But you only get a plus three bonus to your two yep. hit. Yep. So it's a really interesting kind of odd dichotomy thing well, there. There's just no thought that you would want to unify the values across tables. That just wasn't a, a concern. It stays like this uh, up until third edition, yep. actually. Second edition also had that weird dichotomy. Yep. You know what else I noticed, too, about first edition was the the matrix. Uh, on the matrix, you've got that page open yep. still. If you look at the bottom, it says, oh, missile attacks. If you're at long range, you take a negative five. 
And if you're at, uh, at medium range, you take a negative two. And if you're at short range, you take a zero. That's vastly different from the previous setup, which was, well, if you're at short range, you get a plus one. If you're at long range, you get a minus one. And if you're at medium range, you get a nothing. Yep. <laughs> That's a huge change. So it, it feels like ranged attacking maybe sort of is taking on a new, a newer significance or a more important significance than, than melee was. I, I absolutely think so. And I think that it, if I had to guess, just going to do a little armchair reverse engineering design here, I'm guessing that Gary got real sick of all of his players being like, keep that monster away from me, thank you. We're going to stay back here and fill it full of arrows, and we're good. While, while the henchmen uh, run yeah. forward. <laughs> yeah, so he wanted to draw a few more misses from those arrows and get them closing the melee and feeling good about closing the melee so they're around to be more effective. Now, I don't know if that's true. I certainly did not talk to Gary about this, but... <laughs> You know, probably a good. Uh, a good I guess, have some. I, would say. I have some background in the psychology of why people design things the way they do, because I've been around the block. So that's my guess. So can you tell me why it was also designed so that size affects your armor class? <sighs> nope. <laughs> Nope, I got nothing. <laughs> this is the first time that happens in this first edition player's handbook. There's also a note in the PHB that says that your weapon type might affect your two-hit roll. Yep. And in this case, it's not weapon type as in, is it slashing? Is it the bludgeoning? It, it's literal weapon type. Are you using a dagger or are you using an axe? Yep. There's a table that will possibly, if your if your DM wants to, can give you a bonus or a penalty based on what the person that you're attacking is wearing and what kind of weapon you're using, yep. which is amazingly detailed and it's minutia, yep. right? It's minutia. And a table, well, smaller than that, but essentially the same, is definitely going to survive into second edition. I remember right. it well. Absolutely, yes. We didn't use it, but I remember it well. So before we pop over to second edition, let's talk about what happened in between first edition and second edition, which is that we had a 1981 set of basic boxes come out, commonly referred to as the Moldvay Cook BX edition. Yep. And then there was the uh, Frank Mincer set of basic boxes, which uh, came out in 1983 and beyond. That's often referred to as Beckme yep. for basic expert, companion, masters, and immortal. And so the Moldvay Cook, well, let me put it this way. When you read the Moldvay Cook rules, they feel closer to the sort of late 70s style D&D than they feel to late first edition and early second edition D and D. Strength now in in the basic edition, strength now affects to hit. So that's directly you know similar to first edition. Dexterity also affects your two hit and your armor class directly, but not your damage. Interestingly enough, the the armor class it's still a descending armor class, but it starts at nine, not ten, which is something that's similar to that's how Beckme does it as well. There's one other interesting thing that happens about two hit rolls here. They're affected. Uh, missile two hit, uh, ranged attack two hit is affected by dexterity. Also, cover. But the cover bonus that an opponent can get is between negative one and negative four to your attack roll. And it's the DM's choice 
what they give you. There's no guidelines. It's just well, if you're complete, if you're under complete cover, the you're you cannot even target that person, so your two hit penalty is infinite. But if they're under partial cover, it's the DM's choice how what they want to do to you. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> And then we get to the the, the Frank Mincer uh, 1983 basic box. Very, very similar. They also point out the lower your armor class number, the harder you are to hit. That's a direct quote. Nine is your non-armored armor class instead of 10. It's basically the same at that point. They're still using an attack matrix. You still have to look it up on a table. All of those boxes get swept into a single book called the Rule Cyclopedia, which was released in 1991 after second edition was released. And in there, they define armor class as a number indicating how tough it is to hit your character. That's a direct quote. The thing is that that book came out after second edition came out in 1989. So it gave you uh, guidelines on Thaco. Yep. So now we need to go back to second edition for following a timeline here. Yep. And, you know, it first uh, was released in 1989, the the player's handbook in in any case, and then it was revised in 1995, and it has the longest definition of armor class of any of them. It says, armor class is a rating for the protective value of a type of armor. It is figured from 10, no armor at all, to 0, or even negative 10, the best magical armor. The higher the AC, the more vulnerable you are to attack. Yep, that is yeah. that is certainly the truth. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's fascinating what a shibboleth the word Thaco is within D and D gaming, right? Yes, it, it's very much sort of. If you don't already know what this is, getting someone to explain it to you is not especially going to help because it is. Okay, let me be fair. When it's released in 89, it is an absolutely revolutionary step within D&D toward transparency. Because Mm -hmm. now the player knows what they need to roll to hit something. They don't know the the monster's AC, necessarily, unless the DM decides to tell them. Which I'm sure some tables did, and most tables probably didn't. Well, so let's let's give that background. You know, up until this point in time, it was the sort of standard practice, and not that this was the way every table was by any means, but it was the standard practice that only the dungeon master would know all the rules. The players, they could show up and not be expected to know anything except how to use the things on their character sheet. Absolutely. So having this small tiny taste of transparency of seeing, oh, now I have a number that actually means something in terms of what the outcome might be and how to determine that outcome, that that is an amazing innovation as much as it is derided Absolutely. today. Also, you know, think about your, your reaction when you had the DMG open a minute ago. You said, oh, these, these tables are making my head spin, right? They're, they're completely, they are obfuscating, right? They just, you look, and if you don't know exactly what you're doing, you don't know exactly what you're looking for, it's impossible to, to wind your way through there. I absolutely think that's true and fair. But with Thaco, it actually is a way to say, okay, well, here's how... Here's how this number's actually determined, and the player is allowed to know that. Absolutely, and also thinking about you know, 
how the character sheets I presented to the players developed over the years we were playing 2nd edition. I wanted to increase transparency and ease of use, and so I started including sort of a whole number line on there of, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have rolled this, you tell me you hit AC blah. Right. In fact, I think I think in the revised edition it actually says if you're not good at fiddling with, or maybe this was in the in the rule cyclopedia because I was reading that it says basically if you're not good at fiddling with the numbers because some people just want to put one number on their character sheet and they understand what that number means and they're they can do the math very quickly if you're not good at figuring that out just put the whole number line on your on your yep. character sheet and you know that's that's a perfectly fine approach I have many, many friends now that I enjoy gaming with uh, for whom um, dyscalculia... dyscalculia? I'm, I'm saying that wrong. Um, difficulty with basic math is, is a oh, very real problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that accessibility improvement for them is, let's be blunt, it's decades ahead of its time. Uh, it's not well done now. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, in hindsight, I'm very happy to see that kind of thing. Uh, Thaco is a strange tool to get there, but I think that if you wind up with a a tool so obscure that you go to the other extreme and uh, land on very high accessibility for even people that find this sort of thing very difficult, okay, that's a net Mm -hmm. gain, actually. Yeah. Mm Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think this that Thaco actually it gets a lot of derision nowadays, but I think the fact that they were just allowing that they that they were actually making it a part of your character creation to learn that number and try to figure out what that means and how that applies to the actions you're actually your character is actually taking, it paved the way for the sort of more transparent Absolutely. rule set. Uh, the other the other big change is that players can now see in the player's handbook when their Thaco improves. And so uh, they all start at Thaco 20. The fighter is no better off at first level than anyone else, except that the fighter might have a better strength Mm -hmm. score than some of the other classes. And then they improve at different rates based on the, the parent category of the class. So all warriors improve at the same rate, all wizards, all priests improve at the same rate. All rogues improve at the same rate, and all ma- I think I think wizard is actually the parent category, and then mage is a uh, class within that parent category. So warriors are improving at one to one. I want to say uh, priests are improving at two per three, which gives them this really janky stepped thing. Um, and then rogues are improving at uh, one per two, and I believe uh, wizards are improving at was it one per three, one per four? Yeah, it's some, it's a, it's a big, it's big. It might be one. I think it's one per four. It might be one per five. Book is looming over my head, yeah. just out of reach. Sorry. So the the other thing though that also the the advantage uh, in terms of two hit the the fighter the strength based the warrior category the advantage they get also is that they have more proficiencies more proficiency slots Very true. so they can use yep. a wider range of weapons but they can also choose to spend their future proficiency gain on specialization well if and in fairness if we're going to mention that here we 
I think, owe it to ourselves to circle back to Unearthed Arcana mm-hmm. and tag that into the first edition conversation. Yeah, and I, I believe that's I, where specialization I purposefully skipped that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have thwarted you for the first and possibly not the yeah, last time. Yeah, but I, but so yeah, so you're right that that is that is sort of a um, an innovation from from the UA, but it, but it's still front and center in second edition or more so than it was in in first edition the, you know but the thing is so so there were kind of these innovations in in to to hit and with Thaco and in the way that that armor class is kind of being it gets keep getting more description but armor class is still it's it's modified by dexterity but it's still modified in the same way that it was modified in first edition and really not a lot else affects it but so many things affect to hit right i'm, I'm looking at the table of combat modifiers in mm-hmm. my uh, second edition player's handbook this is now player facing this is things like uh, higher ground and and if the target's invisible and stuff like that am i remembering that right it, that that is indeed table fifty one. You just listed the first two items on that table. Very good. Excellent. Def- defender <laughs> off balance. Defender sleeping or held. Defender stunned or prone. And it's just a sort of uh, a spread of numbers based on whoever, whatever the person who wrote the chapter felt like. One imagines. I mean, there's there's some rhyme or reason to. Well, I suppose that this would be worse than that. Well, then make it one number higher. But yeah. it's limited. There's also uh, not some non-weapon proficiencies in second edition affect to hit modifiers. Like there's a, a, a non-weapon proficiency blind fighting. Yep. Right. Because there really aren't, aren't technically aren't feats yet. Right. And so a, a lot of these sort of proficiencies and non-weapon proficiencies and these combat modifiers, a lot of these things end up getting rolled into the way that feats are presented. That's absolutely correct, and that's essentially how I was going to say it. Uh, they they called them the very cumbersome phrase "non-weapon proficiencies," but in every practical sense, they mean feats. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I think second edition also has that creature size thing. Spells can. I mean, this has been since the beginning. Spells can modify to hit. Um, we just didn't mention it before, really. Lighting conditions. I think second edition specifically calls out lighting conditions as a as a modifier for hitting. Yep. Oh, there's a thing in. I remember when I was looking when I was doing my research. I was looking through this armed versus unarmed combatants. There's a there's a there's a interesting. Oh. You, you might think that it's that it would mean that um the one of them has an advantage or something over the other, but it's actually a massive advantage because if you're being attacked by an unarmed combatant, you get to strike first, no matter what the initiative is, because you have yeah. a weapon, <laughs> which uh, is not a technically a two-hit modifier, but that's a hell of a two-hit modifier. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So the other thing that we want to say about uh, size categories... Oh boy, in 1st edition and 2nd edition, weapons do different amounts of damage based on the size of the defender. Mm -hmm. And there's, to my mind, very little rhyme or reason to how this is set up. Sometimes a weapon does better damage against small or medium targets and worse damage against large targets, and sometimes it's the reverse. And certainly some of the, the most exciting damage numbers out there 
are things like uh, two-handed swords against large targets, mm-hmm. because this is the weapon they want you to use to take down dragons, right? Or you know, to cut the legs out from under a horse, because there is still a very meaningful amount of imaginative DNA of the war game mm-hmm. in Zeb Cook's presentation of second edition. Mm-hmm. It's just one of the most fascinating things about the edition to me that there's this super short treatise on military units that wanders all over Europe and covers you know Byzantine um, mounted archers and it covers the uh, Turkic peoples who Byzantium was at war with, and it is just fascinating that that made it into a DMG. Mm-hmm. I it it grabbed my imagination when I read that book in 1993, and in some ways it has not let go. Yeah, I I think that in a lot of ways, second edition more than any of the previous editions at that time. The player's handbook was really the rule book, and the DMG was uh, here's some extra stuff if if somebody's interested. Versus, you know, when you think about first edition, the player's handbook literally was here's what the players can know a little bit of, and the DMG was for the DMG's eyes only, and it was more rules and more ways to adjudicate issues and more ways to make up cool things for your players but it was all still really rules and statistics focused whereas in second edition i think the player's handbook was here's the rules for the game this is what everybody can know and here you go make your character somebody's going to be your dm and the dmg was okay dm here's some good advice Here's some extra stuff. There's some overlap between, you know, what's in the player's handbook and what's in the DMG. But hey, here's some really cool sections where we really just want to inspire you and still talk about it as, you know, as part of this game, but look at all these cool things you can do. Well, the the full page artwork is so lush in that second edition DMG. Yeah. It, it presents such an aesthetic that I didn't know how to even reach for because, man, in 93, when I opened those books, I just turned 12. <laughs> um, I didn't understand even what I was seeing and responding to, but right. it was really something. Now, we're wandering way off of our Yeah, we topic, are. That's but, okay. Well, we can, we can come back to third edition. Uh. <laughs> but, 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 man, if you send me back to being 12, you get what you get. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly, it's exactly right. Um, so, so let's actually, let's pop forward to third edition then. Came out in 2001. It was the first Wizards of the Coast edition of Dungeons & Dragons. Yep. They standardized the modifiers for all attributes for the first time. They yep. uh, standardized the dex modifier to uh, armor class and the two hit for ranged. They introduced weapon finesse. They introduced weapon finesse. They have uh, lots of conditions that can affect two hit in a very straightforward way. They introduced a one always being a miss and a 20 always being a hit. They introduced a higher armor class being better, so ascending armor class. And it's not a number that's based solely on what you're wearing. It's a 10 
plus the bonus based on what you're wearing, plus your dex mod, plus a size modifier, possibly. Plus any number of different spells, right, and feats. Oh yes, feats, right. So let me give you the, the definition of armor class in this edition. Hit me, I'm excited. <laughs> All right. Your armor class represents how hard it is for opponents to land a solid damaging blow on you. And that's a tonal shift from all previous editions. Because as I mentioned before, previously it was, this is really an abstraction, so we don't need to describe it really well. And really it's just, this is what you're rolling against to find out if you hit the thing. All right. All right. So so I got one to lay on you in return. All right. Okay. So this is the uh, third edition definition of hit points. Hit points mean two things in the game world the ability to take physical punishment and keep going, and the ability to turn a serious blow into a less serious one. For some characters, hit points may represent divine favor or inner power. When a paladin survives a fireball, you will be hard-pressed to convince bystanders that she doesn't have the favor of some higher power. Nice. See, and that exactly matches my thought, which is, for better or worse... It is obvious that there is a different set of designers with their hands on this game. Yeah. And I, I don't mean that, you know, I, I love the older editions. You know, I'm, I, you know, Jeff Greiner calls me a grognard, right? I mean, like, I'm, I, I'm not a grognard in terms of I'm, I'm going to stump only for my old 1974 edition, but I love all the older editions. I've played all of them. But this is a real extreme tonal shift between how the game is set up and how it's going to run and how it's going to play. And it's not just in the rules that have changed, it's in the way that the rules are described. It's in modern language, it's in language that people can understand. And when I say people, I mean that 10-year-old that's reading the PHB can understand right. all these things. And in a way that's that makes it more than just an abstract statistical exercise. In a real way, for a lot of, um, you know, 1970s and 1980s, and certainly for me as a 1990s 10-year-old, uh, and, and well, 12-year-old, trying to understand the text of the Player's Handbook and the DMG and the Monster Manual was, I mean, it was a vocabulary challenge. It was a, a, a very forbidding wall of learning curve, but that turned it into a kind of initiatory experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that built a lot of the esprit de corps that is gamer culture. It also is the origin of bullshit gatekeeping, right? right. Let's not yeah. mess around. Yeah, I mean, I, I won't denigrate it. I mean, my great vocabulary as an adult is because I was trying to figure out what the hell it meant when the, the DMG said some weird word I'd never heard of. What is that yep. thing? And I, I appreciate that fact. That, and I also appreciate that I was privileged enough to have parents that would let me go to the library and that had dictionaries in the house and that appreciated that I was trying to read something. I also had an older brother that was an avid reader. So I, I had a lot of circumstances and situational modifiers to my own personal life that made it so that I could spend time doing those things. And that's a privilege. And it, it means that I have a wonderful vocabulary now as a 40-something. But at the same time, when I was 10, I didn't really understand half the stuff I was reading. Right. And one of the other major effects that that had that I'm going to say might be a net good mm -hmm. is that no two tables of D&D &D were the same, in part because the 
the early rules, uh, certainly up through second edition, still had big areas for uncertainty in DM fiat, mm-hmm. and also because it had vast swaths of optional rules. So the DM was deciding so much about what that experience was going to be and how they were going to shape table, table culture, possibly mm-hmm. without understanding what they were doing. Right. And the thing about that is DM fiat is not bad. It's also not good. It's neutral. It, it is an amoral item. However, DM fiat is great when your DM is awesome. Right. DM fiat is a horrible way to do things when your DM is horrible or sexist or wants to be a gatekeeper or wants to make it so that he or she is proving to you that they're smarter than you all the time because they know the rules and you don't. That is when DM fiat is horrible. Accurate. And there, there is a lot of DM fiat in all of the editions, including third edition, which is a rules-heavy game. There's still a lot of DM fiat because there are some areas for interpretation where it's up to the DM. And that's, that's just part of the game. As, as I said, it's an amoral thing. There's not a right or wrong or a good or bad. It's just the way it is. Right. I definitely agree that that's true. I think that at the same time, third edition and fourth edition are explicitly designing to control for bad GM behavior mm-hmm. as much as they possibly can. Absolutely. Their hit rate on that is a very different question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to say that for my money, it's not good. In response to that, in 5th edition, I think the designers have pretty explicitly said, okay, look, we can't really legislate around a toxic or damaged table culture. We've got to assume that your table is full of good actors, and if it's not, you've got to solve that on your own, or with other kinds of social tools. But it's deleterious to the health of the game for us to try to fix it here. Right. And remember, too, that one of the things that happened when Wizards of the Coast took over the game and when they created third edition was they made a they wanted to make a game that was still would still appeal to people who want to know all the rules and want to know everything and want to use that. And so they made a game that relies on system mastery. But they also made a game where it's also possible for everyone to know the rules. It's not just the DM who knows the rules anymore. Very true. And it is explicit about that, whereas second edition kind of was not explicit about it. Second edition still was hedging toward, well, the DM it's the DM's game. You know, the DM can do what they want, even even if we're letting the players know some more of the rules than they ever did before. Whereas third edition was here, you should know the rules. You're going to play this game, you should know the rules. Here they are. Yes, I agree with that. I think that there's also a piece of that that is demystifying the DM's job so that more people will take it up. Mm -hmm. Something that we're still seeing happen in Twitter conversations every single day (laughs) and Facebook conversations every single day is trying to demystify that work so that more people and more kinds of people will take it up. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I think that's a good thing. I certainly do. Absolutely. So the one more thing I want to say about uh, third edition, especially more than 
anything before or after it. Third edition creates situations where the attack bonus or the uh, armor class are ballooning into the stratosphere. And especially in the late game, you can absolutely run into a position where you're going to hit only on a 20 or miss only on a 1. Mm-hmm. That That is absolutely a thing that will happen. And the game is not fundamentally interested in controlling for that. Oh, oh we really need to say that with all those attack bonuses, um, base attack bonus is part of it. It resembles Thaco progression, mm-hmm. but your base attack bonus creates what are called iterative attacks. And these attacks iterate with decreasing bonuses. You, you start with your full bonus, and then you subtract 5 for each additional attack until you have no points of base attack bonus left. So once your base attack bonus rises to plus 6, you get a second attack at plus 1. And then you pile your other bonuses on top of that. And then the exception to that further is the monk. The monk has their own funky math and uh, iteration and that's so much of a separate topic that we're not doing it right now. What you really see and what I want to emphasize as a key piece of driving later design is that situation of this math just means I can't hit or I can't miss. Mm-hmm. Because they realize that that's a level of situational success or failure that actually lacks tension. You can have tension within the scene, but within that die roll of the combat, there can't be tension, right? Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. I really think that that's the key driver of what we're going to say about 4th edition and 5th edition attack bonuses. So I, I guess my thing is that I think 3rd edition is where talking about attack bonuses and two-hit bonuses really, in, in, in a linear, small, structured way, really falls apart. Because in the previous editions, you know, you might have four things that are going to, uh, you know, modify your attack roll. Oh, buddy. And here, here's, here's just a, you know, so a strength modifier or dex modifier, right? So your attribute, proficiency, yep. weapon specialization, non-weapon proficiencies, lighting conditions, weapon type, magical properties of items, spells, weapons properties, whether it's slashing, piercing, bludgeoning, combat modifiers based on situational modifiers we talked about earlier, creature size, armed versus unarmed combatants, range uh, of attack, cover and concealment, and then we hit feats. Yeah. And feats are where everything falls apart in terms of us really being able to have a cohesive conversation about two hit because absolutely everything is wide open there and the same thing happens in fourth edition as well and the same thing happens actually with armor class as well it used to be just a dexterity and armor thing and now you know now we're going to be talking about dexterity and surprise and of course armor feats and weapon types and yep. proficiencies with armor well, and the, the whole approach to magic item design too. Let's not let's not short circuit the conversation on second ed too much because what we've left out is rings of protection. Right. Yeah. And is, the rings of protection are a very real way to suddenly find yourself with an AC south of negative ten. That can totally happen. I'm not saying it's common. You have to have all the top end gear, but 
it is informing third edition. Mm-hmm. In third edition, your AC really might involve so so two points of AC from your shield or four if it's a tower shield. Well, then you stack on five points of enchantment on top of that, and then you've got a ring of protection plus five, and you've got an amulet of natural armor <laughs> plus five, and you have maybe you're wearing heavy armor, so you only have one point of dexterity. Oh, but you got it. You got it as mithril, so you ha- can have up to two more points of dexterity bonus. So that's base eight for the armor plus three for your your dexterity of sixteen, which you have because you're magical gloves. Uh, you have additional plus five of bonus on the armor. This is assuming it's not epic armor, which would be allowed to go to plus six or higher. Let's see. Uh, you might have a haste bonus. Maybe you have um, boots of speed, or maybe your wizard just spends the first round of every combat casting haste because they understand what uh, force multipliers are. Let's see. <laughs> right. So, uh, so here's. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. The dodge feet. Let's not leave out <laughs> right. the dodge feet. So, because... so here's what you're saying, though. What you're saying is we made characters infinitely cooler. They could do infinite amounts of combinations to make themselves ever more epically powerful an infinite number of conversations that center toward the same thing <laughs> right yes right right uh so let's um, let's shift gears for a second and let me bring up something that's related a little bit to ac and something that we haven't talked about, which is saving throws. So here's what I want to say that's related to AC. And the reason I bring this up is because it becomes related to two hit in this way in third edition. Third edition basically took saving throws and, and, well, took them and and added an element to the game that was not previously there, and that is the fortitude, the reflex, and the will. Well, I I think you're borrowing material from future episodes here. That's what I think. <laughs> well, you're doing. what I what I, I, I what I'm trying for later what episode. I'm trying to say is those things the way that they become structured is related to armor class. And so that I yes, you're fair. you're right that that it fair. is an, an an episode in the future for sure, I think. But I but I guess my thing is third edition made so many innovations and made things very very complex. And so it's difficult to talk about just two hit and attack bonuses and just armor class without bringing in everything else. I mean, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And 4th edition didn't change that. 4th edition kept things very complex and, you know, at at the end of 3rd edition, they had they created a a rules compendium uh, which was an excellent product even though I didn't play very much 3rd edition, it was an excellent product. And one of the sidebars in that product was an article that basically said we're making a rules uh, an exception based rule system because rules are really just exceptions to what's already written and then they went and made fourth edition shortly after that and it was all rules uh, exception based rules making and and the point i think of the article was to connect third and fourth edition and also to point out that there's a lot of third edition and fourth edition that is is fourth edition is probably not given credit for. Of course, the person who wrote the article did it before fourth edition came out. But I think in hindsight, it's an interesting thing to read about. Well, it really needs to be said that especially if you look at a lot of the early marketing material for fourth, fourth really labored to define itself by 
bagging on third. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the worst mistake they could have made. Yeah. I think they told their fans that they were wrong to love something. Yeah. And I think that they they borrowed a lot of trouble. Mm Mm-hmm. You just borrowed a lot of trouble. I think there were missteps, um, for sure. But I think that's actually another episode as well. <laughs> absolutely. So let, absolutely. let me tell you the definition of armor class in 4th edition, in the 4th edition PHP. Lay it on me. It says, armor class measures how hard it is for your enemies to land a significant blow on you with a weapon or a magical effect that works like a weapon. Some characters have a high AC because they are extremely quick or intelligent and able to dodge well, while other characters have a high AC because they wear heavy protective armor that is difficult to penetrate. And that brings up the idea of armor class not just relating to dexterity anymore. Yeah. One of the one of the other innovations that we really can't skip talking about talking about armor in third edition is damage reduction. And it's going to show up again in fourth as resistance of various degrees, but it is a, a fixed number off the top for any incoming damage pool. It is a way to arguably keep an armor class hittable while still piling on more defensive capacity. Yeah, and yet armor classes still went way off the rails. <laughs> oh, did they? Well, and, and don't get it twisted, so did damage reduction. Oh, yeah, that's true, yes. <laughs> look at look at 3rd edition, uh, 3.0, and see what happens with the uh, resistance to non-magic weapons or weapons of an insufficiently large bonus. And the same thing's going to happen when you look at energy resistances and so on. I mean, you're definitely going to run into situations where, again, there's no tension in the roll. There's no way to hit this thing hard enough to pierce its damage resistance if you don't have the key that goes in the lock of its damage reduction. Which forces a style of gameplay that attempts to account for, or have a way to account for, all of those various permutations of what the characters could actually come up against. Which creates an arms race with the DM. It, It absolutely does. The DM has to now create an ever more increasingly challenging encounter because the players are busy trying to be able to deal with ever-increasing challenges, which is the whole reason why I never uh, played or ran very much 3rd edition. Well, I mean, it it very much takes on the, the nature if you let it, and only if you let it. It doesn't have to do this, but it can take on the nature of the gear progression of an MMO in late game rating where you just don't have the the thing to to progress here and you have to go earn it. I mean, I did a bunch of raiding in Burning Crusade and I don't have to squint real hard to see some similarities between that feeling of well, we we just don't have the right kinds of resistances and so on to go fight this boss yet. Like, it's not a fight yet. It's just, cool, thanks for showing, we're dead. And that can happen in in late game third. It's really interesting that you say that to me, because one of the biggest complaints, early on at least, about 4th edition was it felt like an MMO. And yet you're saying this about 3rd edition. Uh, That's, uh, that's That's very interesting. 
in terms of that, just that aspect. Right. I think that in third edition, it happened by accident. In fourth edition, I think... On purpose. I think they did it on purpose, (laughs) and I don't think they were wrong to do so. I think that they got slagged for it, and... I think there's a. I think they're the fans weren't necessarily wrong to slag them for it, but the designers weren't wrong to see what was going on in fandom and try to bring in new DNA. That wasn't wrong. Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree. I am uh, for any, anyone who listens probably knows I I played a lot of fourth edition. I ran a lot of fourth edition. I love fourth edition. I also love older editions. I'm not. I am not an edition uh, purist, so to speak. I'll I'll play it all. <laughs> Right on, Although man. I have I have played the th- less third than all of it. Part of that also is because I started going back to school, and so I had a lot less time, and I was working full time and all that. So you know, real life stuff got in the way. It wasn't that I purposefully chose not to play third edition. So just putting that out there. Yeah. Uh, but it is the it is the edition I've played the least amount of, um, and so it's interesting. Uh, that's one of the reasons I want to do this podcast is because then I get to learn about the stuff I don't know as much about. So we've been talking for quite a while. So I have one final question for you. All right. We ha- we haven't really touched on fifth edition at this point. That's right. That at this point it just has to be its own episode. But because it's the current edition, I think that we can go mighty deep and really say some stuff. Right, right. So so let's let's hold off on that for the moment. And here's my question for you. Of all of the editions now that we've talked about today, which one do you think has the best ratio of interesting complexity and ease of use from the player perspective? Oh, that's a great question. A great question. I think that the simple beauty of OD&D, okay, look, you just have to have a baseline of trust with your GM and go forth and conquer. There are very few levers for players to understand on the mechanics side. So it's all on the table. It's all in the culture and the table and the conversation. That That is great. I mean, I, I'm not sure that in my mind there's even room to debate that 3rd uh, edition is so complex and full of content options that it is just daunting to a player of even a great deal of experience. Of the editions we've covered, then... I think my two high watermarks for e- so so my high watermark on ease of use I should say is going to be O D and D for right number of levers I I might have to give it to second because I think fourth has levers that don't quite stick right because there are all these ways to hand out bonuses to your friends that become very cumbersome to track because you're not tracking not only the bonus but also its duration. And then there are also ways to apply penalties to AC and so on. So I think that 4th edition winds up being too too detailed. There are too many things floating around at once, but 4th edition's heart might be most in the right place in a sense, where if you could cut it by I'm going to say a, a fairly fixed 30%, you would be in such a wonderful sweet spot for the whole lifespan of the game. There's just this point where the the complexity of options and actions becomes daunting even to the very experienced. Now, there are some more things we're going to have to say about 4th edition and attack bonuses and armor class when we come back in the next episode, but there were some some 
very small but very famous design mistakes that <laughs> that crept into fourth edition and that they are in some of the most central roles in the whole game. There are many future episodes for us, I think. There's something interesting that is coming to mind right now, and it's not really on topic, but it kind of is. <laughs> I, I feel like, I mean, you know, I mean, the topic is D&D, so whatever. I feel like the complexity was low for the players in the older editions, but the DM fiat produced the situation that you described earlier, where there's a lot of different ways to play the game. And so the shared experience in those older editions was playing the adventure modules that everybody else was playing, which is one of the reasons why something like the Keep on the Borderlands is so famously well-known. Because all the players at the table can be having a different experience because their DM is judging things differently. But if you're playing the same basic storyline, it keeps you as though you're in a shared experience situation, even if the rules are being interpreted in vastly different ways. Third and fourth edition did not have that shared experience in in a way, in the same way, because the shared experience with third and fourth edition came with building the characters, learning the optimized combos, getting the best magic items, and not as much about the actual adventures not that there weren't iconic adventures but the shared experience didn't come from that the shared experience came from using the rules and i feel like fifth edition is back to having shared experience that is more about the adventures that you're playing that is certainly a a conscious move within the the whole product line of fifth edition and their whole move to radically slow down their release schedule i mean I think it's probably still true that once a week on Facebook, I see someone new to D&D or sort of a, a year into 5th edition saying to themselves, saying in the Facebook group, so where are all the books? It's yeah. It's been almost five years and right. this is all they're doing? What's wrong with them? There's nothing wrong with them. This is a strategy. Right. And right. Th- what's, they're up What's wrong on- with them? Fi- Fifth edition is still on the bestseller list. <laughs> yeah. What's wrong? <laughs> they're, they're laughing all the way to the bank, right? Yeah, um, right. And it means that their fan uptake and fan interest in each individual book is wildly higher than could be sustained in third or fourth for any individual book. Well, there wasn't any room. Right. When you're, when you're putting out a hardback every month minimum, there's no room. You can't, you can't build hype. Uh, exactly. You build hype... And then you release the book, and then two weeks later, you're trying to build hype for the next release. Yep. You're not giving any room for your fans to, to be appreciative of the things that you've already produced. I think it still also directly relates to things like two-hit bonuses and armor class, though. Because I think those, and the, I think part of the reason we chose this as one of the first topics we hit is they become very complex, and they have a distinct, direct effect on how the game is played. That's truth. It's one of the roles you're going to make most often. Yeah. Well, do you have any last thoughts? I think we probably need to wrap it up. Um, no, I think that I've said what I need to say so far, but I think that next time we're going to pick up with a deeper dive into what's happening in the the cut and thrust of fourth edition attack bonuses and armor class and resistances and so on. And then we will really commit to hitting fifth edition hard, which means that we're going to get into some, some sort of nooks and crannies, because as you say, it is much more simplified. And we will get to use two of my favorite words in the whole edition, bounded accuracy. 
God bless them. Bounded accuracy, here we come. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this discussion. If you haven't, let us know what we could do to improve. And if you have, well, I'm glad that you did. We're kind of new at this. We're, we're not really sure where it's going to go. We're just kind of big, huge fans. And we're going to talk to each other probably roughly every two weeks and, and try to release uh, episodes on the regular. And so, you know, if there's something that you would like to hear us talk about specifically, let us know. You can email thetomeshow at gmail.com or you could reach out to either Brandis or myself on Twitter. What What's your Twitter? Twitter uh, info, Brandis? At Brandis Stoddard. B-R-A-N-D-E-S-S-T-O-D-D-A-R-D. Nice. And I am at DM Samuel. So thanks for listening, and uh, hopefully uh, you'll listen to the next one. 